Hello and welcome to another episode of Max Planck Florida's Neurotransmissions Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Schumacher, and I'm joined today by three stellar individuals who are going to enlighten us about all of the beauty of studying the cerebellar cortex, uh, the, the intricacies of the circuit, and much more. Um, and returning to the show, I have Audrey Bonat. She's a postdoc in David, uh, whose lab are you in? Jason Christie's lab. <laughs> Audrey, welcome back. Thank you. Hi. Um, so you've brought a friend also. So yeah. also from Jason Christie's lab, uh, Dr. Matt Rowan. Matt, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. So Matt, this is your first time on neurotransmissions. Um, can you give us like a, you know, an elevator pitch about what you're, what you're interested in? So I have sort of a, a broad interest in subcellular uh, mechanisms of excitability within neurons and uh, more in, I try to keep that in a, a broad con- conceptual framework of what is the circuit in total wanting to do and um, sort of, but I'm, I'm really more of a thinking about things on uh, terms of ion channels, their organization within the neurons themselves. Cool, cool. And of course, we have uh, our guest of honor today, hailing all the way from Evanston, Illinois. Professor Indira Raman is here. Uh, she's the Bill and Gail Cook Professor of Biological Sciences in the Department of Neurobiology at Northwestern University. Go Wildcats. Professor Raman, uh, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So um, we have had a few guests on the show uh, who focus on the cerebellum. Um, what is it to you about uh, cerebellar circuits that are particularly attractive? What, why have you sort of you know, built your research career around this st- structure? My interest in the cerebellum was, in a way, um, serendipitous, because I, it wasn't that I was so much attracted to the cerebellar circuit, per se, as to cerebellar neurons. Um, I started out actually studying the auditory system as a graduate student. And what charmed and fascinated me about that was the way that um, individual synaptic receptors could be tailored to transmitting particular kinds of information. And it was the thing that led me to understand that there could be ion channel diversity that was suited to the transmission of particular kinds of information. And um, I started studying cerebellar neurons in Bruce Bean's lab as a postdoc just because they were a handy preparation Mm -hmm. to start looking at ion channel biophysics. But I can say that the thing that I found very interesting about cerebellar neurons in general was that the Purkinje cells that I'd learned about in many classes were inhibitory projection neurons. And I didn't know that much about inhibitory projection neurons at that time. And I wondered whether the target cells had any interesting specializations of their ion channels that might make them suited to the gathering of information from inhibitory inputs. So can we, can we unpack that a little bit? So you were surprised about this idea of an inhibitory projection neuron uh, as opposed to, say, an excitatory projection neuron. When we think about projections between regions in, say, neocortex, oftentimes we're talking about excitatory neurons, neurons that have glutamatergic uh, axon terminals. Um, so the idea that a Purkinje cell is an inhibitory neuron that projects to another region of, of uh, cerebellum, or is it even outside cerebellum, the, well, in the, the cerebellar nuclei? So the, in, the, in the non-vestibular cerebellum, the Purkinje cells of the cerebellar cortex will project to the neurons of the cerebellar nuclei, which are in the core of the cerebellum. That's why they get that name. I see. In the vestibular cerebellum, they'll project out to the vestibular 
nuclei. Gotcha. Um, so the cells that I study are the ones that are in the cerebellum, and they are the primary output cells of, they're the only output cells of the non-vestibular cerebellum. Gotcha, gotcha. And so the Purkinje cells, just like to give people a visual, because oftentimes you'll, like if you have a picture of a crazy looking neuron on your coffee table book or in the New York Times, it's often a Purkinje cell. They if have these lucky. crazy uh, arborizations. Um, they send an axon off to the cerebellar nuclei um, and they're, they're firing all the time. That's another Right. right, and that was one of the things that I, I learned about. Um, I learned that they had high frequency firing when I was a graduate student, um, and I wondered, well, how do they do that? How does that how does that work exactly? Because I'd learned about neurons having resting potentials at minus sixty millivolts or minus sixty five millivolts, depending on who's teaching your class, and um, and that they would fire an action potential, and that was information, and that would lead to excitatory synaptic transmission that could send a signal to the next cell. And now suddenly I was um, faced with a bunch of unusual observations, I thought, that I was gleaning from the literature, that the Purkinje cells had high rates of firing intrinsically. Um, so they were signaling all the time. And then that they were inhibitory. So they're sending inhibitory signals all the time. And I thought, well, how do the target cells ever say anything? Right. And so I wasn't really thinking about it from a a circuit perspective at that point. I really just wanted to know how were they listening? How were the target neurons listening to the inputs from Purkinje cells? As a postdoc, I ended up not following through with doing the project I'd intended to study and spent all my time trying to understand how Purkinje cells were generating these signals in the first place. So I stayed within the world, marvelous world, of the Purkinje cell body, which is complicated enough, uh, studying the ion channel biophysics there the ion channel physiology, um, and, and trying to understand how the Purkinje cells made those signals. It was only when I started my own lab that I picked up on the question that I had, had initially drawn me to the cerebellum, which is how are the target cells listening. And it turned out that there were such interesting properties of these cells just as electrophysiological units, just their intrinsic neuronal characteristics, that I have spent a good deal of my career just studying the, the intrinsic and synaptic properties of these cells. And it's only in very recent years that I have come to the point where I feel like I know how to use that reductionist perspective in a way that may be of value to the systems level field, both in terms of my offering it up to other um, experienced systems physiologists, and also now we're starting to do a little bit of that level of work ourselves. That's kind of interesting you said, um, you know, you think about a Purkinje neuron as sort of a self-serving intrinsic machine and you know all neurons are set up in different ways um, uh, but often uh, oftentimes when we think about you know circuit mechanisms and learning and memory we think of synaptic plasticity but are, maybe are we uh, in general sort of uh, undervaluing the way that the intrinsic uh, properties of the neurons in the in the circuit is, are set up for for instance learning and memory I don't know whether it would explicitly be undervaluing. I think that, in a way, on the contrary, I think that many, many researchers are starting to realize how many variables there are to attend to. Mm -hmm. Of course, plasticity is a really interesting in to a system in many different ways. 
one is the the larger perspective, which is plasticity is really interesting, right? Because it's telling us how the brain is learning, how new things are happening, and the cerebellum has a long established history in being involved in motor learning. Plasticity is also handy from a more reductionist perspective because you can look at differences, you before and after, right? You have an immediate differential that you can measure and attend to, and by seeing what are the mechanisms underlying that variation, it helps you get a grasp of what are the variables that are controlling the behavior in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that, again, when we go from a reductionist to more integrative level, uh, we can talk about the reductionist level of just looking at synaptic properties. And now it's even more integrative when you think about how those synaptic properties superimpose on the intrinsic characteristics of the cells, the intrinsic firing rates of those cells. And so we're always dealing, it's almost fractal, mm-hmm. we're almost always dealing with the elements of reduction and then how the, the elements of reduction and how they superimpose on the next level of complexity. Then you have to take that cell and bring it into the circuit and, and, and so forth, and, and it keeps on extrapolating upward. It's really interesting, I, and I think it it highlights the real problem for specific investigators in neuroscience. Like mm-hmm. oftentimes, and you can look back at some of the episodes of this podcast, people that are very interested in connectivity within a neural circuit between these functional computational units. Like for you, a Purkinje cell is one of these. For somebody else, it might be one variety of inhibitory neuron in the cortex or an excitatory pyramidal neuron in cortex. Oftentimes when you're at the systems level view, it seems like the researchers sort of put plus and minus signs in their diagram and you lose all the rich complexity about, you know, the timing of synaptic inputs and excitatory or inhibitory potentials and postsynaptic cells. You, you sort of throw all that detail aside for the sake of simplicity in your wiring diagram, whereas for you, the biophysicist, the real meat of the problem is down in those intricate intrinsic cell properties that get completely brushed aside. So how do you, I mean, how do we as a field of neuroscience integrate that really complex cellular view with the superficial but descriptive level of systems or circuits? I mean, it seems like that's the challenge going forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, excelling at one um, often seems like it's at the expense of another. Yeah, I think I think the answer to the general question you're asking is simply awareness and the awareness of what level of analysis is pertinent to the particular question you're trying to answer. If you're trying to cure a disease, for example, or treat a disease, you may not need to worry about all the details in the moment if you have some kind of a therapy that works. Of course, it may not work as well as you think it does because of some of those details that you happen to be ignoring, but there's a cost-benefit analysis, right? And so I think that we need to, A, understand that there are many levels of analysis at which one may want to enter into a question, uh, and then there are different variables that are going to be more or less relevant when one is examining that level. And I think each one of us has our own interest, intrinsic sort of uh, um, buoyancy um, <laughs> along some kind of a, 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 a gradient. Um, I think I'm mixing metaphors there, but that tells us what level of an al- what level we want to break into a problem. I think I'm a reductionist by nature. I can't help looking at. I can't help but look at um, the the characteristics of the ion channels and wondering about how those are playing into the circuit. There are other people who are doing outstanding work that aren't actually taking that kind of information into 
um, consideration at the level of their experiments, but they're looking at inputs and outputs in a way that help them answer the questions they're answering. The fun part, you called it a problem, but I think um, it's a problem in the with a more historical meaning. meaning. It's a problem with a more historical meaning that is we want to probe it rather than it's problematic in right. an unpleasant sure. way yeah. of how do we knit those things together. And I think we're getting a lot closer because of many of the um, breakthroughs that are letting us study circuits and manipulate ion channels and record from awake behaving animals asking questions that we want to ask and so forth. And so I feel like there's a lot of hope. So do you think someday you're going to have, you're going to be seeing a talk that's understand consciousness at the level of ion channels? I may not see it, but you might. <laughs> Another, so as an outsider in the field of, of cerebellar research, I, and, and maybe I, I mentioned this a little earlier, was that um, I feel like the circuit's well described. We know a lot of these intrinsic cell properties. Like We're actually kind of getting, like you said, to a place where we can start to knit together these different levels of understanding. What do we not know about the cerebellum at this point? And I, I, I saw your talk today. It was, it was a great talk, and I learned something new. And every time I see a great talk on the cerebellum, I learn something new. But I'm always surprised that we don't know everything because it seems like the wiring diagram's there. We understand the biophysics pretty well. I mean, how, how, maybe all three of you can tell me a little bit about, you know, what, 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 is, what is the mystery in this field that, that keeps, keeps us going? I like to, you know, this is some, so I started my postdoc and I did a lot of very hardcore subcellular ion channel type of studies. And that was just for the, basically the, the beauty of it, essentially, and learning something new about a neuron and how it works. But I always in the back of my mind and always keeping this sort of idea of like, how is it that we can make this a little bit more relevant? And so mo moving towards that, I think it, I, it does appear that for us to learn something useful about why the why neurons are set up the way they are, we do have to integrate with what the circuit wants to do, uh, and that is in some way move in vivo, uh, to a in vivo in vitro mix of uh, of things. And we, we have the techniques now where we can, as as a cellular neuro neurophysiologists, we can kind of start to feel a little bit more comfortable about the situation because we do have cell type specificity of genetic control often. Uh, we can change certain parameters in, in, in a more refined way and then move up the into from the cellular level to the circuit level. Um, and that, that I think in using that kind of thinking um, has helped, um, it will help to kind of continue moving forward thinking about how are the, for instance, those intrinsic properties of individual subsets of neurons set up for the the success of the animal, essentially? So, and, you know, Audrey, I mean, it seems like, you know, we have a pretty mm -hmm. diverse set of, of levels at which we're looking at this, at this problem from you know uh, Professor uh, Raman's, um, you know, biophysical level description to the type of stuff that Matt's doing. And you're actually doing behavioral type stuff um, it, while recording and manipulating cerebellar circuits. So from your view as somebody who's looking at the animal doing something, uh, what, what, why do we even have these circuits? What is cerebellum for? Like, and maybe, that, maybe that's way too broad of a question, but like in general, how do cerebellar people think about the types of computations that cerebellum is doing? So, so 
Cerebellum is very important, I think mainly for the timing of actions. And um, so when you record Purkinje cell activity during a certain behavior, you will see that the Purkinje cell activity will relate to certain aspects of movement, such as the acceleration, the velocity, like it will encode property of the movements. And if you get lesions in the cerebellum, then um, you will uh, you will get problems in uh, actually making these movements. We can also nowadays, like using optogenetics, uh, activating certain cells or inhibiting certain cells in the cerebellum during a certain behavior, and you will alter all of these highly skilled movements. So I think uh, the cerebellum plays an important role in that. But uh, I also think that you mentioned the simplicity of the cerebellar circuits. And that's probably one of the reasons why there are still so much we don't know about the cerebellum. And because one of the reasons why you still learn something every time you go to a cerebellar talk is that people thought it was a simple circuit, but there is much more complexity in it. So that actually is a perfect segue to a question I have for you, Professor Rahman, which is, you know, you gave a talk today where you, you described pretty well some, 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 uh, We'll call them classic studies, um, not old studies, but studies that basically show that if you look at the timing of the firing of some Purkinje cells, which, as you described, are these inhibitory projection cells, and the timing of the firing of the cells um, that they project to, which, correct me if I'm wrong, are excitatory cells, but they're basically the targets of inhibitory cells. Yeah. Um, what you see is that they sort of fire in phase with each other, which means that they fire at the same time. What you would imagine if a Purkinje cell is an inhibitory cell would be that when these cells are firing, the other cells are shutting up. Like that seems to be sort of the default scenario. And you went through and described um, ways at which you could parse apart how that is even possible using biophysical uh, experiments. But you also had some interesting behaviors. Um, you were able to replicate some old studies where um, if you if you record from neurons in cerebellum while the animal is moving, um, you can record the timing of the action potentials um, at specific phases of say when the arm is moving or the whisker is moving. So I mean, is that your assessment as well that cerebellum it's all about the timing of of motor activity or is it is it more complex than that? Do you think? So I'm going to go back to one of the questions that you raised before that you opened by saying. Um, as an outsider to the cerebellar field, you were struck by both how much was known and how much is not known. I'm going to echo that because I'm also an outsider to the cerebellar field. I'm, I'm um, both amused and bemused by, by your referring to me as a cerebellar physiologist, cerebellar scientist. I'm also entering the field of cerebellum in certain ways because I've really been a synaptic physiologist ah, and an ion channel physiologist who happened to be working on cerebellar cells, but not really thinking about it so much in terms of the whole motor I circuit. See. And that's been fairly recent for me. And it's been a wonderful um, experience trying to become uh, someone who is able to think coherently, if not cogently, about what's happening in this remarkable brain structure. And so as I read the literature, um, I'm very struck by everything that's known about cerebellar learning, both at the, at the macroscopic level and, and, say, the microscopic synaptic level. 
The questions that I become interested in are how the cerebellum is contributing to well-learned movements. When is it participating and when is it not participating? How does it talk to parts of the brain like the basal ganglia and the motor cortex and the spinal cord? Um, it's not part of the brain, but I misphrased that. How does it talk to parts of the nervous system like the basal ganglia and the motor cortex and the spinal cord? Who's dominant at which times in which ways? These are questions that are addressed in part in many studies, but as an outsider, it's hard for me to see how those all come together, and I think that that's going to be a very interesting area to explore. And then at the more microscopic level, we talk about Purkinje cells as a relatively homogeneous bunch, but it's becoming clearer and clearer that they're not really homogeneous um, altogether. They may be playing different kinds of roles. There may be different flavors of Purkinje cells, or at least under certain circumstances. Uh, likewise, in the cerebellar nuclei. And there are moments when I think, when we look at these cells, is it, this is an exaggeration, but when we look at these cells, are we looking at a, a palette of paints and asking a question like, what is red for? <laughs> and what is yellow for? Is it the way that they, that a particular movement or painting comes together and uses the red and the yellow and the green? Um, to make something coherent. It's a far-fetched analogy, but sometimes I wonder how far toward that analogy it's, it's, it's going to be appropriate to go. So back to the question that you just asked about um, um, the timing. One thing I'll emphasize is that Purkinje cells do indeed inhibit the cerebellar nuclei. And when we look at those plots and see that Purkinje cell activity goes up and nuclear cell activity goes up at the same time, the, the relevant variable there is on what time frame are we talking about. And my sense is that the data that we're gathering are leading us toward thinking that Purkinje cells are definitely inhibiting the cerebellar nuclei, but on a very microscopic time scale. So that if we look at millisecond levels, we see indeed an alternating pattern of Purkinje cell activity and nuclear cell activity. But if we look on a multi-millisecond, tens or twenties of millisecond timescale, we may see that the activity goes up together and goes down together, and that can be that paradoxical observation that can be made. And so we're trying to understand what are the specific patterns of activity in the Purkinje cells and the afferent mossy fibers, the excitatory input coming to the cerebellar nuclei, how is that excitation and inhibition integrated so that one dominates at one time, the other dominates at the other time, and, and sculpts that pattern of output of the cerebellar nuclei on the time scale of milliseconds so you can get this millisecond level control over movements. It's, re and it's really interesting because when you look at sort of the increases and decreases in firing of these Purkinje cells, they sort of have a sort of low frequency component to them where you're getting lots of spikes uh, during one chunk of time, few spikes in a little chunk of time. So you imagine that the modulation mm -hmm. that the Purkinje cell is doing is, is quite slow, mm -hmm. I mean, from, from my perspective. Mm -hmm. But what it appears to be doing is leaving over you know, microscopic periods of time that are like sort of precisely allowing specific spikes to jump through in the, in the cerebellar nuclei. Is that kind of... What you're, you're that is finding. definitely the idea that we're working with. That is the that's the idea that um, I was presenting today. I should be very clear that these are works in progress, mm -hmm. and that there may be circumstances under which that kind of a model um, is is fulfilled, and circumstances under which and circumstances under which that may be less true. This is what we're trying to figure out, right? So again, you ask, what do we still need to know? I think we need to know the entire palette of 
of um, responses that we can get in the by the cerebellum that the cerebellum can generate, we need to know all the languages it can speak and how it switches possibly modes of, of signaling according to the kind of behavior, yeah. the degree of familiarity of that behavior, right. um, and so forth. And so I presented a piece of the puzzle. I think it's a coherent piece of the puzzle, but I think it may not be the only piece that fits into that particular slot. There may be another puzzle piece with the same shape and very different pattern on it. And so you, you were mentioning that different areas of cerebellum might have different output patterns. For instance, mm -hmm. if you're in like the, the main chunk of cerebellum, you might have these cerebellar nuclei mm -hmm. um, outputs from Purkinje cells or vestibular, if you, yeah. is that, and then the vestibular mm -hmm. nuclei, which is, is what you guys study, right? Yeah. So yeah. I mean, different. this kind of goes back to the theme we were talking about a little before, which is that the cerebellum is often thought of, and other brain regions are often thought of as, because they look similar, their layers and cell types look similar, but uh, pretty much all the hidden intrinsic uh, mysteries are, are or they are still hidden, and there's a, they could be some very serious differences uh, between how the circuit is is dealing with uh, you know, inputs and outputs and plasticity mechanisms as well. Even in a system that simply seemingly simple as a cerebellum, like for instance the uh, as you're mentioning, there's a there's different there's even entirely different outputs in different uh, subregions of the cerebellum, and of course we even know now you know we we're talking about the function of the cerebellum as well. We we know that um, for instance the the flocculus, uh, which is actually part of the cerebellum that controls the vestibular um, learning and vestibular type of motion, um, is there's one example there. But there's not there's recent studies. Uh, from uh, different regions of the cerebellum that uh, that may be projecting to non-motor areas as well. So uh, this this could be uh, involve social behaviors and, and other things that are completely unexpected. So it's imp it's just important to keep that that sort of um, uh, how should I say uh, pioneering sp uh, spirit mm -hmm. on on really looking at mechanisms within what your what which circuit you're actually interested in, and not just assuming that. You know, in one part of the cerebellum, we have, you know, LTD is responsible for learning, and it, may, it could be different in another part of the cerebellum. We just don't appreciate it because we haven't looked at each of these uh, components thoroughly yet. And so, um, I mean, it kind of comes back to that, the idea that you were mentioning that, you know, maybe not all Purkinje cells are created equally. Like, maybe mm -hmm. there's a little diversity at the cellular level, and then even if the circuit looks the same from one region to another, maybe... There's still some additional flavors. I mean, we see yeah. that. I think this could be true for neocortex as well. You know, yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, the, the things that we're assuming are are circuit mechanisms in one area are, are not just because things anatomically appear somewhat similar. Uh, you know, the, the activity patterns that those cells have been experiencing are going to certainly be involved with setting up their uh, intrinsic properties. Of course, uh, that's known. So, and even you, if yeah. and even if this. Purkinje cells would have similar properties. I think what was really nicely shown by Indira's work was that the properties of the target neurons are also extremely important, and mm -hmm. the properties of these target neurons may be different whether you look in the deep cerebellar nuclei mm -hmm. or in the vestibular nucleus. Yeah, it does yes. present. Go ahead. It's interesting how different cells can listen differently to their inputs, so they can have the same input and they can respond completely differently. And this may be true also 
not just across obviously different cell types. Today I talked about the large cerebellar nuclear cells and the small ones that go back to the inferior olive, and they have some different properties with their GABA receptors, but it may be that there are differences across different regions of the cerebellar nuclei. And as we've also found, there are differences between male and female mice in terms of their responses of their cerebellar nuclear cells. So there's a whole, um, there, there are many ranges of, I don't really want to call it complexity because that just seems to muddy the waters. I think it's more that we have a system that's multipotent because it has to do many different things. And in a way, that's sort of the, the beauty of why it works, why this is such a versatile subdivision of the brain, not necessarily more versatile than others, but that's where I think a lot of its own versatility comes from. And I think approaching it, we have to both acknowledge the vast amount of solid work that's been done for the last 50 plus years that have made great strides. The work has made great strides in helping us understand many of the computational possibilities in the cerebellum. And at the same time, we need to approach all of those conclusions with the right degree of humility and skepticism realizing that there are things that we haven't figured out yet because there have been variables that haven't been accounted for. So if, if we could, I'd, I'd kind of like to shift gears a little bit um, because there's another aspect of, of uh, your career that I find really interesting. And um, uh, you are a hilarious writer. I don't know <laughs> if this is something that comes up very often, but you, you write a series of essays for uh, eLife, um, which is a, a that's a, um, a publicly, uh, what's the term for this? Open access. Open access journal, uh, mm -hmm. journal um, where um, uh, you 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 sort of muse on aspects of scientific life. Um, uh, one that literally had me laughing out loud was uh, uh, called triaging Shakespeare, where you basically um, wrote up a mock. Um, review of uh, William Shakespeare submitting, I think it was Hamlet, yes. uh, to the to the NIH for approval. <laughs> yeah. um, and I, um, I need to pull up this one quote because it just like, it, it just struck a chord with me. Uh, so reviewer one um, gave a moderate level of significance saying that under the strengths, uh, understanding the human condition is potentially of high impact. It should be pointed out, however, that previous investigators have tried and failed, so this should be seen as a high-risk, high-gain endeavor. Um, that's basically a reviewer telling Shakespeare, like, I don't know if Hamlet's going to work out because it hasn't worked out for other people. So how do you how do you approach these essays? I mean, what is it going on in your day-to-day -day life? Is it just like... Uh, it's it's what you're frustrated about at the moment, and that's like the the immediate source of comedy. Or um, how do you choose a topic to to skewer like this? The muse speaks. <laughs> um, well, that's that's a good question. Uh, I think I've always found um, relief through humor, through parody, yeah. uh, satire, and I think that in order to succeed and even survive in this field, one needs to cultivate a sense of humor. That may be true about life in general. But in this particular case, uh, I'll let you guess what was going on in my life that made me lampoon the peer review process. I was actually writing a revision of a grant, and it was at the time when the NIH was switching to this, these 
bullet pointed critiques where um, the critiques have become shorter and you split um, the evaluation into the strengths and the weaknesses. In the past, they used to be more of a synthesis of strengths and weaknesses together in a less structured format. Also, the, the grants themselves had switched to being from a long format where you wrote for 25 pages into a shorter format where you write for 12 pages and it's a little more structured, a little more formulaic. And I was having the difficulty of responding to these much briefer critiques and mm -hmm. um, compressing my grant into a much shorter format. And I was at home working in the evening and um, feeling the constraints imposed upon my natural scientific creativity. And I started imagining <laughs> what would it be like if every creative endeavor had to go through peer review. And I was thinking, how would this play out actually in a venue like literature? And that took me to thinking about Shakespeare. And that took me to the specific case of Hamlet. And by this time, I was actually storming around my kitchen. And in that moment, I think I hit on that particular line that you quoted about how reviewers would evaluate the kind of um, exploration of the human condition that Shakespeare was undertaking. <laughs> and I laughed. And the laughter broke my line of anger. And after that, I just wrote the thing out. I went into fantasy land and um, had a delightful time amusing myself. Uh, and when I was done with that, I had exercised something in my system. And uh, I was able to write my grant, which incidentally was not funded. But um, <laughs> it was five years later that uh, I shared it with some friends. I should mention that Eve Martyr is the person at eLife, the, the deputy editor-in-chief of eLife, who writes that column, Living Science. And she saw it, and she, she saw what I had written, my triaging Shakespeare piece, and she invited me to publish it there. So it was, she was quite gracious about letting me write on her column, which I've done a few times since then. So how do I do it? I think it's just my own response to the various uh, pressures in the world, and I try to think think about how articulating those pressures, often in humorous form, uh, provides a relief and a release that allows me to go back and deal with the issue in a more rational way. Yeah, that's an interesting way to round that out, is, is that we were talking about this a bit, is that the choice uh, to enter into this uh, career path and to stick with it is uh, is not something that's lightly done. And the longer you're there, the more you realize you're kind of um, you you have to be in it for the long haul. There's no plan B really, uh, because it is just so difficult. Uh, so at some points, you have to. There's, there's a really a strengthening of character that goes along with the, this process. It's one of the last true internships as well, really, in the world. Uh, Doing the PhD and uh, fighting the good fight, so to speak. So, uh, the whole, you know, I guess your whole career is just con it's just a continuing process of growth and learning and the challenges. So, uh, it's just it's just good for though it's almost impossible for those outside of uh, uh, of what we do to really understand it. But it's kind of good to just talk about it. Yeah, I think that many fields will have their version of 
what we perceive as defining and almost unique to this field. Mm -hmm. I think one characteristic yeah. of this field that is um, characteristic, again, if not unique, is the, the uncertainty and the requirement to maintain the creativity of the artist <laughs> all the way through. That you're always living by your wits. You're almost always presenting a set of ideas to a skeptical world. And that way I feel that it's very much like many branches of art, mm -hmm. um, creative art. And um, I had a pianist friend who once said, you can play the concert of your life and there's always going to be someone in the audience who hated every note. There's always Flag. a critic. <laughs> and if it's bad luck, that's the person who's reviewing your performance or your paper or your grant. And so one needs to build a certain resilience to that and yet a receptivity to anything in the critiques that may actually be a value that you have to respond to. Mm -hmm. But we all have moments where our resilience goes low, which is the, the, the valley I was in the night I was writing that grant. And my way of pulling back up uh, is, is to articulate it, to state it, to state it in a way that um, entertains and maybe uh, satirizes, but also clarifies for myself what I actually believe in so that I can hold to those ideals and fight the good fight. The interesting thing in, in publishing Triaging Shakespeare <laughs> was... The, oh, yeah, the, the massive amount of email that I got afterward <laughs> of people saying, your piece was hilarious, I loved it, it was really entertaining, it reminded me so much of what happened to me, I'm so depressed, let me tell you about it, here's what happened, you won't believe what the reviewer said. And so I got many, many messages <laughs> that started out with this sort of communion, the communion of scholars uh, I'm so glad someone's making the, the joke that is, it's, it's my joke, it's about me. Um, I can relate to this, but then also commiserated, and and it revealed that my experience wasn't really an isolated one. Yeah, yeah but there was some comfort there. Yeah, it's sort of peer review. Yeah. Good feedback is yeah. sort of peer review. Um, yeah, I mean it, it's interesting because like when you, you know, some people make the decision that they're going to go for a career in science when they're eighteen years old, nineteen years old. They're doing undergraduate research. You're a very different person when you're going in sort of idealistically and thinking about things that are interesting to you, how you would maybe study them. And then when you're at the point where maybe your R01 is being reviewed, like you've been through a lot, you're, you've, you've been through the, the gantlet quite a bit. And um, it, it's, it's interesting that in science, like the same types of ups and downs can occur at all different careers, but the stakes are very different. And so it's almost like we don't get any training to deal with life. We, we, we get training to deal with like, you know, how do you patch a neuron properly or how do you like, you know, make a poster or present your work. We don't really get any kind of, you just it's sort of trial by fire where you just have to like learn that there's going to be like, there are sections of this whole process that are so truly like that. Yeah. 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 It is funny. Like, you know, because you know, if you're, if you're in at least a business career, you know, for since you're 20 years old, and like, okay, by the time you're 30, you're ready for your first big business deal, multi-million dollar business deal. You'll have some confidence in, in negotiating, for instance. I mean, it's funny that, you know, basically a poor PhD student and a couple of years of postdoc and uh, you haven't really gotten any experience in that side of the world. All of a sudden, you're, you're thrown into that fire of, oh, not only am I designing what I could be doing scientifically, which I feel like it should be 99% of my time, but actually have to think about 
how is it that I have to talk to people and be politically correct about all this and everything else? So it's uh, it's it, it's really kind of a it's kind of quite interesting. Yeah. But on the other hand, every moment of every day is the training to deal with life. And yeah. if you want, the data are there all the time. If you really attend to your mm -hmm. advisors and your the professors that are teaching you and training you, if you really listen to the side comments that come up when people are giving their lectures, if you attend conferences and listen to those scientists as people and sort of listen through what they're presenting you about their science uh, and attend to their experience the way you might pay attention to a big brother or a big sister, um, the information is there. I made a conscious decision many years ago to chat with my lab members more, tell them more stories about the things that in a way they'd probably rather not have to listen to me talk about. And I, in some ways, feel like it might be good to shelter them from. But I tell them stories. We laugh, you know. Um, we make jokes about things. And years later, a couple of them, once they've gone out on their own, um, have come back and said, now I understand why you told me all those stories. Can you give Mr. Miyagi? <laughs> No, go ahead. I was going to say, can you give a, a, a bit of an example about what kind of what the content broadly of these stories might be? They usually involve human interactions mm -hmm. at the level of study sections or peer review or university administration or um, training of other students or yeah. teaching of classes, and they often include some outrageous. Um, um, interactions that make very funny stories in the moment, and but they also model for them how I'm trying to deal with a situation that might be complicated. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't actually come through always in the moment that that's what we're doing there. But I do think that by sharing with each other the kinds of situations um, that we encounter, and I will say the way that I'm dealing with things isn't always the best way. <laughs> It's what seems like it makes sense in what seems to make sense in the mo in the moment, um, but by sharing those stories, by by talking about that component of things, in addition to talking about, uh, you know, what the best blocker for the synaptic current was, yeah. that is the training we can offer each other because there is no training for this. It is about living by your wits. It's just like research science, and one can hold to one's ideals if one articulates them enough along the way to remember what they are, the further along you get. Yeah, I think this is important advice and uh, something for trainees and, and um, also you know, PIs to really learn from. At um, you know, th This kind of thing is often overlooked, and I just think that, uh, yeah, I appreciate this perspective quite a bit. I mean, every day is, uh, could be, a, uh, as you're kind of mentioning, um, a way to learn about uh, about the soul process in, in more depth, and uh, that that's I think that's really great that you do that. And uh, maybe I think um, yeah, we should all think about uh, doing this more. So I guess why why some people you know kind of hold back from that is they just uh, they want to shelter their trainees a bit, and, and perhaps this is a really I don't know why that may be. There may be various reasons why that is, but um, yeah, it's 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 a, interesting to hear that. Yeah.
Yeah, sometimes I think one doesn't really want to involve other people in things that are potentially unpleasant. Yeah. I mean, it's a benevolent impulse. Yeah. And that's why, for me, it was a conscious decision to try to find ways to let my trainees and other people's trainees have a sense of the kinds of things that come up and my own ability and inability in the moment to figure out what the right thing to do is mm -hmm. and to articulate that uncertainty um, and let them see when it plays out in a way that was desirable and when it plays out in a way that is undesirable. I think that we have that to offer to each other. And I think that revealing one's uncertainty and revealing that decision-making process is a very important component of mentoring, teaching people how to navigate this extremely rewarding but very complicated career. That was really interesting and really emphasizes the importance of sharing experiences, but also like being able, I guess, to take distance sometimes. Mm -hmm. uh, moving forward, would you mind to share with us what is the topic of your next essay? <laughs> <laughs> What's on your mind these days? Boy, I don't know when exactly there's going to be a next essay um, or, or whether there will be another essay. One thing that I've been thinking about a lot, I don't know what form it will ultimately take, is the importance of cultivating idiosyncrasy in science. We live in an era in which we're very um, interested in codifying. We're very interested in codifying a lot of aspects of science, and with good reason, um, with interest in making work reproducible, with interest in making work accessible, um, with interest in making work modular with interest in making work um, efficient because many people are working on it at once. And so many of these pushes toward codification and, and um, rendering things formulaic are motivated in positive ways. But there's a flip side of science that I think has to be cultivated and maintained, and that is what I've taken to calling the idiosyncratic method. And that includes the moments when off-the-wall things are tried, when individual research groups do things in unconventional ways, whether it involves the acquisition of data, the plotting of data, the asking of a, of a uh, surprising question that's really off the beaten track. And I think that we just have to be vigilant and aware as we formalize scientific structures, also as neuroscience really comes of age, we have to be careful about formalizing structures at the expense of that idiosyncrasy, which is often the frontier level work that is really pushing things forward. I haven't quite figured out how to articulate all the things I'm thinking about there, but that is what's on my mind these days. Well, Professor Raman, thank you very much for joining us today. That was a great conversation. Um, and Audrey and Matt, thank you for, for sitting in too and, and, and uh, for a great time. Thank you. Um, My pleasure. That's it for today. Uh, be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter at NeuroPodcast is our Twitter thing. Thank you to our producers in the Office of Scientific Communication and uh, to the Max Planck Florida Institute for sponsoring the podcast. And we'll talk to you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to Neurotransmissions. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and now on Spotify. 
Connect with us on Twitter at NeuroPodcast and at Facebook.com slash NeuroPodcast. This has been a production of the Max Planck Florida Institute for Neuroscience. 